This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Jim Pankovitz. Card number 487, Jim Pankovitz, second baseman slash third baseman for the Houston Astros. All right, Jim Pankovitz. And why are we talking about Jim today? The Astros are one of our least covered teams thus far in the 1988 Tops series. And I was looking through the 1987 Astros to see if there's anybody of interest and also if there's anybody who had a Sabre bio on that team. And I came across the name Jim Pankovitz and remembered that back in December of 2020, so long ago, let's add in a throwback (laughs) sound effect. I had an exchange on Twitter with Greatest 21 Days about Jim Pankovitz, as you do. Greatest 21 Days is a blog researching the minor league ball players of 1990, important scholarly work. And that blog also includes a lot of interviews. They interviewed Paul Nochi, and one of the first interviews was Jim Pankovitz. There's also a blog post on Night Owl cards about this card in particular and Jim Pankovitz's 1989 card. So this week we have an Astro. He has a Sabre bio by Bill Nowlin, and we also have multiple other blog posts with important and valuable research and information about Jim Pankovitz. He only played 318 games over six major league seasons, but we also have a tie to the recent Chicago mayoral election. Sounds like great reasons for an episode and lots of research done makes it a great episode for April and May for us. So let's go to the front of card 487 and we have Jim Pankovitz. He's not looking at the camera. He's intentionally looking away from the camera. He's giving a sideward glance. I would expect someone like Bruce Willis to be doing a look like this on the front of a movie or TV poster. You know, from Moonlighting, for example. You know, you could see this kind of shot. It's very dramatic. He's got a mouthful of chewing tobacco. He's got a giant glove. I, there's so much going on in this card. As you said that about Bruce Willis, I just looked up the Die Hard movie poster. Mm. In one of them, there is basically Bruce Willis with this sideward glance looking at the Nakatomi Tower. Yes. 40 stories of sheer adventure. Jim Pankovitz. It's Jim's middle name, Hans. Jim Hans Gruber Pankovitz. He also, that is an uncomfortable amount of chewing tobacco in that cheek. He looks like he could be setting up to throw a pitch, like he's looking over at first base, holding the runner on. But then if you look at his glove, and this is something that the Night Owl Cards blog post pointed out, that is not an infielder's mitt. He's a second baseman slash third baseman. That's a catcher's mitt. Mm. And we will get to that a little bit later, why he's wearing a catcher's mitt. I also included a link here to the Hal Lanier card from this set, because this looks like a manager card, where you might be Mm. looking to the left or right on the bench. Jim Pankovitz was, early in his career, even when he was in the minors, viewed as management material. Not necessarily star material or hot prospect material, but the Astros saw him as a future manager. And I included the link to the Hal Lanier card, and if you click on it, 
Hal Lanier, the actual manager of the Houston Astros, looks surprisingly like Jim Pankovitz. Same pose, <laughs> perhaps foretelling the future, but Hal is leaning up against the, the railing of the dugout in that picture. You're right. It is a striking similarity in these photos. Hal Lanier, just his face showing 20 or 30 extra years of baseball experience in his brow. But Jim Pankovitz, it's just a good look. Astros with a vengeance. I like the stripes on the sleeves and the Houston Astros dark blue hat. Good card. At least on this card, they spelled Jim's last name right. <laughs> In the minors, you had one card that called him Plankovitz. Another <laughs> called him Planowitz with a, a U instead of a V and no K. Planowitz. So many vowels in a row. Even his 1985 Donruss card, such disrespect from that other brand, called him Pankovitz with a Z, not an S. I think that Jim's name is Hungarian. Not entirely sure. Didn't find whether or not he was of recent Hungarian origin. When I looked up the ancestry of that name, possible outcomes were Hungary. Unknown at this time, but let's go to the back of 487. And we have Jim Pankovitz, second baseman, third baseman, height 5'10", weight 175, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Astros in the fourth round of 1976. Born August 6, 1955, in Pennington Gap, Virginia, with a home in Richmond, Virginia. Pennington Gap, Virginia is in far western Virginia, a coal mining town that peaked at around 2,100 people in the 1950s, now has around 1,700 in population. But Jim and his family weren't there very long, only about a year and a half. They were there because Jim's dad, Vince, was a minor league manager in the Boston Braves organization. At that time, he was managing the Pennington Gap Miners. Vince had been a Marine in World War II, then played in the Miners in the Braves system, mostly at the Class D level, the lowest level of the minor league system at that point. He was a pretty good hitting catcher in the low minors, and then shortly thereafter went into managing. While managing at Pennington Gap, he met his wife, Phyllis, and then he moved on from coaching. And the family moved to Richmond, and Vince took a job. This is a job I did not know existed. He was a diaper delivery man. <laughs> he managed the Stork Diaper Service for 20 years. And as a young person, Jim would help Vince cleaning out dirty bins. This is dirty work here. Mm -hmm. Jim said, we had to wash the trucks, clean out the diaper bins. Oh, man, did that stink. Jim said that that diaper delivery business was done away with by Pampers and the disposable diaper. Vince was also a Little League coach and a huge influence on Jim. And Jim said, I basically had no choice. He put the bat in my hand when I was in the crib. He used to come in and get me off the couch to go play catch in the backyard instead of vice versa. I was destined to be a ball player. Fortunately and obviously, I enjoyed it. With that baseball pedigree, Jim was an accomplished little leaguer. The Tuckahoe Little League team, coached by Vince Pankovitz, who took his minor league coaching experience and applied it to little leaguers, made it all the way to the Little League World Series final. In 1968, they lost to the team from Osaka, Japan, one to nothing. Three years later, Jim's senior league team was again runner-up to the team from Japan. And Jim went to Douglas Freeman High School, named for a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, newspaper editor, radio commentator, and Douglas Freeman was also a racist segregationist. Notable alumni of Douglas Freeman High School include Dean Fleischer Camp, who is the co-creator of the video short Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, 
and Constance Wu from Fresh Off the Boat and Crazy Rich Asians, as well as Bill Leverty, guitarist for Firehouse. <laughs> Do you remember Firehouse's big hit? I forget what it is. But baby, don't treat me bad. Yeah, just a, is it a very good? It's very not good girl don't walk away jam. mad. Girl just walk away. That's someone else. <laughs> That's like Ugly Kid Joe or something. Yeah. But baby, I, I couldn't get that out of my head after reading about Bill Leverty. Hopefully, we'll cut the singing. We'll put that on the on our Spotify <laughs> playlist for the show. Jim played baseball at Freeman High School and earned a scholarship to play at South Carolina, where he was coached by Yankees legend, eight-time All-Star, five-time Gold Glove winner, and 1960 World Series MVP Bobby Richardson. And Jim played as a freshman, hitting only 239, but he did get significant playing time for the South Carolina Gamecocks. He took a big jump as a sophomore, hitting 315. Seven homers, five triples, an OPS of 935, and South Carolina made it to the College World Series his sophomore year. They lost in the final to Texas, and Jim had a pretty disappointing World Series, hitting only 130, including an 0 for 4 performance in the final. But as a junior, he was still very good, 294, average, 12 homers, and was named the third baseman on the Sporting News All-American team. That summer, he was playing college league ball when he got a call that he was picked in the fourth round by the Astros, 25 spots ahead of a young man from Oakland Technical High School named Ricky. Ricky who? Ricky? You know, just the greatest leadoff hitter who ever played. Was picked in the fourth round. Amazing that he lasted that long. Jim's path through the minors was long. He didn't make it to the major leagues until he was 28 years old. He spent eight years in the minors, first assigned to Rookie League in Covington, Virginia. His parents were still just a few hours away in Richmond, so they got to see him play pretty often. That first year, he was moved to second base. He had always been a third baseman. He hit 247 at Covington, but we do get a fun fact. Yeah, that's that Jim led the Appalachian League second baseman. With 212 assists and 47 double plays at Covington in 1976. So while at the plate, his performance was okay, pretty good in the field as a new second baseman, he moved up to A ball at Coco, hit 227, which while not flashy, was I guess good <laughs> enough to move up to double A in 1978, where he hit 240, 10 homers, 7 triples, and enough to get a short trip to AAA with the Charleston Charlies, where he played three games in 1978. 1979, he again starts at AA, plays 92 games at AA, 22 at AAA. Combined, he hit 249, 10 home runs. Pretty good for a second baseman around this time. 1980, he plateaued. He was firmly entrenched at AAA, but didn't get a call up to the majors. In his first year at Tucson, he hit 249 with a 667 OPS. And he was 24 years old, so this isn't really screaming major leaguer, but he greatly improved in 1981. He had a 282 batting average, seven homers, nine triples, and 18 steals. Unfortunately, he was blocked in the Astros system. We've talked about some of the other second basemen for the Astros during this time, like Phil Garner and Bill Doran. Phil Garner being in the pros and Bill Doran being at double A. And in 1981, the Astros also had Johnny Ray at Tucson. So Pankovitz was playing some third base, some outfield, some second baseman, and even a couple games at short. 
1982, the Astros have Bill Doran, who's a year or two younger than Jim, and he's moved up to be the AAA second baseman. Pankovitz is 25 years old. He's no longer really considered a prospect, so he's traded to the Padres. According to Baseball Reference, on March 28th, he was traded for Douglas Lulay. Douglas Lulay only played three games in 1982 for Houston's AA team, and then he was back on San Diego's A and AA teams, where he played 111 games. Pankovitz was in the Padres organization at AAA Hawaii, played pretty well, 267, 15 home runs, 22 steals. But then we have the this way to the clubhouse, but there's something weird that happened here. According to Jim, he said, I was traded for a player who was hurt. The deal became a trade for a player to be named later. Then the two organizations couldn't agree on a player after the season. I became the property of the Astros again. But the this way to the clubhouse says something different. Yeah, it says that Jim signed as a free agent with the Houston Astros January 23rd, 1983 and spent season at Tucson. Baseball reference says he was granted free agency after the 1982 season, signed in January. So this must have been the kind of technicality there of what happened with that trade. Douglas Lulay, that was the last season that he played in minor league ball. Just a kind of an odd Dickie Knowles situation traded for himself. So Jim spends 1983 at Tucson and has a great season, 287.809 OPS, 11 home runs, a career-high 32 steals, but still no call-up. The Astros have infield of Bill Doran, Dickie Thon, Phil Garner, and established utility players on the bench in Denny Walling, Craig Reynolds, and Harry Spillman. In 1984, Jim was finally just too good to stay in Triple A. He hit 332 and slugged 540 in 49 games. And the Astros GM Al Rosen said, "We always felt he was a guy who should get a shot in the big leagues." And Jim was 28 years old at the time, so you can imagine him maybe not uh, not feeling the same way about that. But surprised or not, he did get his call up. In his debut, May 27th, 1984, against the Pirates, he came in for pitcher Dave Smith. Down two to one, two outs in the bottom of the ninth. It was all on Jim. He singled to keep the game alive, but the next batter flied out to end the game. He gets a start in the next game. He was playing every few days. On June 2nd, he had a really good game, went three for five, got his first RBI against the Dodgers. He said, I'm up in the clouds. It's such a great feeling. After all those years, he's finally in the big leagues. He got significant playing time that season. He ended up getting his first home run, a pinch hit three-run homer off John Franco on August 11th. All in all, he played 53 games, hit 284 in 85 plate appearances, and he had only two walks. 1985 and 86, he spent the whole season in the big leagues. 1985, he had career highs in games played and at bats with 75 games and 172 at-bats, and he hit 244. He did spend some time on the injured list with hamstring issues. And then 1986 was a big year for the Astros. As we've talked about before, they win the NL West. Jim made 70 appearances, 44 of them as a pinch hitter, and led the team with 11 pinch hits and a 283 batting average, a versatile player off the bench, including... As foretold by this card and its mitt as an emergency catcher. In 1985, in an effort to make himself indispensable, 
he volunteered to be the emergency third catcher. He was never used in 1985, but it helped him stay on the team. He got to suit up in 1986 for one inning, the ninth inning of one game, and it was a three up, three down performance in a 12-1 victory. So he found ways to make himself indispensable. And also that further shows that management experience as the third catcher. He was also hanging out in the bullpen, getting to know pitchers and just kind of being a, a sort of coach. The Astros did make the playoffs that season, winning the NL West and they played the Mets. Jim had two pinch hit appearances, one as a pinch hitter for Nolan Ryan in game two, where he struck out. And then in game six, this must win extra inning game, Jim pinch hit for the prankster, Larry Anderson, in the 13th inning. He grounded out. The Mets would go on to win that game in 16 and win the World Series. And even though Jim went 0 for 2 in that playoff series, he said that this was the best experience that he had in the majors was those two at-bats in the playoffs. No word if he was one of the coneheads with Charlie Kerfeld or ever t partook of the orange jello. But as the bullpen catcher, he probably spent some time sharing ribs with Charlie, hanging mm. out with Larry Anderson. That's a good spot to be at, hanging out with Charlie Kerfeld in the bullpen for the Astros in 1986. No doubt about it. 1987, Jim split time between Houston and Tucson. He said, they kept sending me to Tucson to get at bats and stay sharp. I'd be on the bench in Houston go to Tucson and play well, then come back to Houston and sit on the bench, which is not very satisfying. He played 50 games for the Astros that year, hitting only 230. He went seven for 32 as a pinch hitter. But in AAA, he was tearing it up. 327 was his average in 34 games. The Astros wanted to keep him around. And manager Hallinier said, we haven't given up on Jimmy. He has too much value to us. But then in 1988, that value was very diminished. He hit only 221 in 68 games. He was also only two for 27 as a pinch hitter. So he never got a chance to heat up or get in a rhythm. After the 1988 season, he's released. But in the 1989 top set, he has a card on the Astros. This is quality control failure. Matt, do you see this picture that I've posted in the notes? Yeah, we see a signed 1989 tops card with Jim Pankovitz. And a great contrast to the 1988 smoky-eyed Jim Pankovitz giving the Bruce Willis diehard stare. Instead, we have Jim Pankovitz with a Mario and Luigi mustache holding the bat like he's about to bunt. It is really strange-looking card, and it's an autographed card as well. Night Owl Cards has a blog about this one, comparing it to the 1988 card. Night Owl was convinced that it was a different person, and he was interviewing Jim when he was a coach in the minor leagues and night owl cards, the author here couldn't stop thinking about this card. And he said, if he only knew that I collected his baseball cards, I'm supposed to be a professional journalist, someone above idolizing players who should be analyzed objectively. And I'm comparing his baseball cards in my head. And he was too nervous to ask him one, what's the deal with that glove in the 1988 card. And two, is this you on the 1989 card? Luckily, the other blog that we referenced earlier, The Greatest 21 Days, confirmed the cards were both him. This mustache was grown while playing in Venezuela, and he brought it back to the States. I don't know if he had to declare it at customs, but it's a beautiful mustache. Unfortunately, in 1989, he wasn't 
playing for the Astros, and he ended up not playing at all in Major League Baseball. The Astros released him at the end of 88. He signed with the Pirates for 1989 and played in Buffalo for 30 games, hitting only 181. They had an agreement that he would play every day, and when he wasn't really playing well enough to keep that up, they sold him to the Dodgers. He was better at Albuquerque for the Dodgers and got into some games, but then injured himself in the first game of the AAA playoffs. When playing in the outfield, he ran into the wall and broke his wrist, which is very rough. In 1990, he's a free agent again and signed with Boston, who were looking for veterans for their AAA team. And he played most of the year with the Paw Sox. He said, two weeks after our season was over, Marty Barrett was almost run over by a cab as he was putting some luggage in his car outside the hotel in Chicago. He hurt his knee real bad. He wasn't hit, but got injured getting out of the way of the cab driver. And that opened up the window for Jim to get his call up. Sort of. It opened a window to get him a spot in Boston where he appeared in two games and played three innings. Jody Reed got most of the minutes at second base. And so Jim didn't ever even field a ball while playing in Boston, but he did get to celebrate with the team when they won the American League East. He had brought his camcorder with them, and so he was in the locker room. He said he still has the videotape of the celebration, but he didn't play in the playoffs. And that offseason, he and his wife stayed in Providence, Rhode Island, where he sold suits at a department store. Good job. He stuck around Pawtucket one more year, hit 265 in 65 games, but his hamstrings told him it was time to quit. So closing the book on Jim Pankovitz, six seasons in the major leagues, 318 games played, a 250 batting average with nine home runs and an OPS plus of 87. In the minor leagues, 13 seasons, 1,248 games, a 258 batting average with 1,156 hits, 93 homers, and 149 steals. How about in retirement? The Astros knew early on that Jim was management material, and the Red Sox felt that too. They asked him to manage their double-A team, and he did so for three years, finishing last in each season. It's not necessarily a mark of a good or bad manager when your best players are supposed to get called up and move along. But Jim did say his dad was surprised when he took the job, but he said he'd enjoy managing more than playing. And Jim said, I know what he meant. And his next 20 plus years show, Jim loved managing minor league baseball, particularly at the low levels. He spent a ton of years at A ball, some at double A, but never really higher than that. He went to the Astros organization for a few years then left baseball for a little while, did some insurance work, finished up his college degree at Virginia Commonwealth, rejoined the Astros, managed A-ball, became a roving coordinator for a while, but then he missed the competition of management. And so from 2006 to 2010, he was the manager at the A-level teams in the Astros organization, then moved to the Mariners and Cleveland And in 2020, prior to the pandemic, he had decided to step away from the game, having spent nearly 30 years as a minor league manager. Okay, David, at the top of the show, you said that Jim had some kind of connection to the Chicago mayoral race. So what is that about? The final paragraph of Jim's Sabre bio really sold this to me as this is the guy we're going to talk about this week. We just had a mayoral election in Chicago. And according to Jim's Sabre bio, As I was looking through it, I found a name, and it was a connection to Illinois politics. And as I looked into it, 
There was also a connection to the city of Chicago and one of the candidates who ran for mayor. So in 1988, Jim married a woman named Tressa. They were married for the next 13 years. And Tressa in 2001 was press secretary to the lieutenant governor of Illinois. That lieutenant governor was a woman named Corinne Wood, who was a Republican lieutenant governor under Governor George Ryan. And I kind of thought, I wonder if I've ever met this person. And I haven't, but as I looked at her LinkedIn profile, I realized we shared some connections here, but also that not only did she work for the Republicans, but she also worked for some Democrats. She was a consultant for a young Democratic Illinois senator named Barack O. something. She then went to law school, became an attorney, and then from 2010 to 2017, she has listed on her LinkedIn profile that she was the co-founder slash COO of the Vallis Group, Paul Vallis for non-Chicago slash Illinois types, at one point ran Chicago public schools, ran for governor in 2002 in the primary against uh, Rod Blagojevich, ran for lieutenant governor in 2014, ran for Chicago mayor in 2019, and then again this year in 2023 was on the ballot for mayor of the city of Chicago. Tressa is now at the Progressive Policy Institute working on education issues, but her name came up when I was searching through articles for a connection with Paul Vallis. This year, during the campaign, there were questions about where Paul Vallis lived, whether he lived in the suburbs with his wife, or whether he lived in the city of Chicago, where you have to live to be the mayor. And he was listed as living in an apartment in Chicago. And from 2017 to 2022, he was registered to vote at an apartment owned by Tressa Pankovitz. Oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> The story had been that he was living in this random apartment. I didn't realize that he was living in the apartment of the ex-wife of a player in the 1988 top set. That is the prestige, right? She was claiming that this was her residence for tax purposes, but she had lived elsewhere in California and DC and wasn't living there. There was not necessarily any allegations that there was any kind of impropriety there, just the fact that he was listing this as his residence while probably living in the South suburbs. So I said that Jim and Tressa had been married for 13 years. They did divorce, but they remained friends. And as of 2021, they had resumed their relationship and Tressa was living in DC and Jim was moving from South Carolina to DC. So they, they are still together. Jim is retired from minor league baseball for now, but I, I did think it was interesting that, particularly as we are about to inaugurate a new mayor who is not Paul Vallis, that she had a connection to the this losing candidate for mayor of the city of Chicago. This is the hard-hitting political commentary and insight that people look for when they find a 1980s baseball card podcast, David. I'm really blown away that we found that connection. So excellent job. Kudos. When we first looked at this card... We knew that this was a guy you know, who was born to be a manager, and we could tell from his age on the card that he really wasn't going to be a star player. But now that we've looked into him a little bit more, what do we think? Jim Pankovitz was a guy who saw it all. He may have been at one point expected to move up to the big leagues. Fourth round pick, not necessarily a guarantee that you're going to be a superstar, but he also then just stuck around, playing at AAA for five or six years and not making it to the majors until he's 28. Just in the past month, a player for the Pittsburgh Pirates, Drew Maggi, got called up after 13 seasons in the minors, and it was this big story. We don't really have a lot of those guys because 
I don't think that guys in their 30s back in 1988 were still sticking around. So Jim Pankovitz is kind of as close as we get. A guy who's capped out at AAA, maybe could be a 250, 260 hitter in the majors. And back then, that was good enough to be a backup second baseman. Add in the fact that you're willing to be the third catcher on the Houston Astros, hang out in the bullpen with Charlie Kerfeld, probably get pranks played on you. And there's something very admirable about Jim sticking with it. As a coach, there's a video here with his players talking about their boss. Intercut with Jim Pankovitz getting into it with some umpires. So Jim's players loved him. They called him boss, stud, super swag. And Jim could talk to his players about the reality of of where he'd been. And knowing whether or not you are future management material, future major league material. And as far back as 1980, Jim said, management thought my immediate future would be as a manager. They said I didn't project to be a major league player. Fortunately, I proved them and a lot of other people wrong and got to play five years in the major leagues. And then 30 nearly years as a manager, helping players move along and continuing that life in baseball. So from the 1970s until 2020, that's the life that Jim knew. And that's a pretty great life. And also a connection back to his dad and his dad's time. That's probably 80 years of baseball history and not the greatest baseball history. <laughs> Some pretty <laughs> low levels of baseball history that the Pankovitz family has been involved in. So a pretty cool connection, an interesting player, and a guy who's just a baseball guy. I think we could have seen it from the front of the card to begin with. This is a guy who had this kind of character, a good story, and a great career. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home. If you've ever gotten your big break because your buddy almost got hit by a cab in Chicago, we'd love to hear all about it. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>